Hello, everyone, and welcome to worship today. We are so glad that you are here and a part of this worship experience. You know, the great, the great Greek philosopher Plato described man as a being in search of meaning. And I think that all over the world that is true. I believe it's true in this room right now. There are people on a search for meaning. For those listening over the internet, I believe it is true. There are people all over that are searching for meaning in life. And we're searching for something that will make life make sense no matter what our current circumstances are. Now that search kind of expresses itself in many different ways. Some search for meaning in love and relationships. They're trying to find that special person that is going to make life make sense, that is going to bring meaning to their life. Others search in their career. They have huge ambitions for a preferred future and they go after it with, with gusto, trying to find meaning in life. Some search in hobbies or travel or religious experiences. Some search for meaning in drugs and they try to find it in some fantasy world of escape and it may seem to work for a while as long at least as the high lasts. Well, the men in our story today from the Bible were on a search. Their story is one of the most familiar especially to people who've been around church for a while, it appears in the Christmas story in the Bible. We sing about it in our songs. We see it portrayed in our nativity scenes around Christmas time. But I think we need to acknowledge something right up front. There's a number of myths about these wise men that we probably ought to address right off the bat. One myth is that there were three of them. Frankly, we don't know how many there were. The Bible doesn't say. We do know that they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and I think that's probably where the idea of three came from. But let's be clear, there could have been seven or 15 or 30 for all we know. The Bible, the Bible itself doesn't say. Another myth is that they were kings. Again, never says that in Scripture, but we have these songs like We Three Kings of Orient Are, and we see three wise men usually portrayed in a typical nativity scene. I think that that belief that they're kings is something that's just developed through tradition, through history, but it's not scripturally based. Another myth is that the star that led them was kind of like a weird UFO, you know, sort of suspended, maybe not that high above the ground, and they were on their camels following this moving star. But actually, in their own words, they said, we have seen his star in the east, past tense, in the east. They had come from the east, and they were traveling in this westerly direction. 
If the star were like a UFO that kept moving with them and ahead of them, they probably would have said, we have seen his star in the west. They were in the east, and so if they saw it in the west, then they would be following it westerly. But no, they say we saw it back in the east, and I'll say a bit more about that in a moment. I think another myth is that these were wise men, that is, they were clever people. Well, they're called wise men in some translations, that's to be sure. But I think the New International Version that we're going to read from in a moment rightly calls them magi, M-A-G-I. Now, that's a Persian word, and it's kind of hard to translate directly into English. But if you add one other letter to magi, C, it becomes magic. And I think that's a clue. These men were schooled in the magical arts. In other words, they were ancient astrologers. And astrology was popular in the ancient world just as it is popular today. Here's what it involved. They studied the planets and the stars and their movement and placement in the sky at different times of the year in relation to the earth. And here's the key. They believed that the position of those heavenly bodies in relation to the earth had an effect on people's lives today. And that belief is still very much around. You'll talk to people today and they may ask you, well, what is your astrological sign? What sign were you born under? Because supposedly that can tell a lot about your life and your personality and your circumstances. 80% of North American papers carry some sort of astrological chart on a daily or at least a regular basis. And millions of Americans look to those charts every single day to tell them what they ought to do, or what they can expect. Astrology, just in North America, is a $20 billion, excuse me, $200 billion business every single year. And there are over 100 magazines devoted to astrology. It's available online at the click of a mouse. So what I'm saying is, this isn't just an ancient phenomenon. In fact, Interest in astrology from the articles that I'm reading is actually growing today, especially among younger people, particularly those so-called millennials. So these astrologers came from the east, either Persia or Babylon. If it was Persia, that is modern-day Iran. If it was Babylon, that is the modern-day nation of Iraq, and they had come from the east, and they were reading in the stars something about the birth of a king. So let's ask another t question. What in the world was this Bethlehem star? I want to tell you, you can drive yourself nuts if you dare to research that a little bit. There's all, all kinds of theories about that. Let me mention just a few of the most popular ones. One popular theory is that in 7 BC, there was a very unusual conjunction of the planets of Jupiter, Saturn, and Mars. 
Now, Jupiter in this ancient world was known as the planet that represented kings. Saturn had to do with the Jewish people. So they put it together that there was someone being born here who was going to be a king of the Jewish people. Another theory is that these men saw an exploding star, a nova or supernova. These stars, as they explode, emit enormous light and heat. And that light is billions of times their natural intensity. And so it lasted at least for a few weeks. And in this ancient culture, seeing this unusual light, they attach some significance to the interpretation. And that's a possibility. Many people believe that the star of Bethlehem was actually Halley's Comet. As you know, that comet comes around about every 75 or 76 years, and it's believed that it appeared in the sky about 11 B.C. Some dispute that date. But if they saw that comet, they may have interpreted from that that it was leading them to go on a journey from east to west and that something special was taking place the british bible scholar william barclay has an interesting statement about this you could call this another theory i suppose he says and i quote in the years 5 to 2 bc there was an unusual astronomical phenomenon a brilliant star called missouri rose at sunrise and shone with extraordinary brilliance. Missouri means the birth of a prince. And to these ancient astrologers, such a star would undoubtedly mean the birth of a great king. Bottom line, we don't know exactly with confidence what it was. It may have been none of these things. God may have created a special light in the sky that appeared as a star and shone, and it was purely supernatural. We simply don't know. But one thing we do know, whatever it was, these men were so impressed by the significance of it that they were willing to travel across barren deserts, rugged mountains, and make their way as they pressed on to their goal of Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Now, at this point, you may be sitting there wondering, Pastor Rex, what in the world does this have to do with me? Good question. Because these men were on a search. And what that has to do with us is that, you know what? When you think about it, there are all kinds of stars that people are following today. Various things that they're searching in and giving their life to and pursuing to try to find meaning in life and some sense of purpose. But often these searches end up feeling rather empty. It's interesting to me that these wise men, these magi, came first to Jerusalem and they show up asking the question, this is Matthew chapter 2 now, verse 2, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. We read on. When King Herod heard this, 
he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. I find this very interesting. When Herod asked the scribes, the teachers of the law, these people who were supposed to be experts in the Old Testament, where is this king to be born? They knew the answer immediately. And they quote him chapter and verse. Now here's what I find provocative. That was written, Micah, the prophet, wrote that 750 years prior to this event, prior to when it happened. Here's what I'm saying. These magi were discovering that they were stepping into something that wasn't some passing or ephemeral fad. They were stepping into something that had its roots deep in history. It had been written about centuries before. Now, Bible scholars tell us that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. Some scholars believe there are exactly, and again, I've not personally counted every one of them, but I do know there are a lot, having read the Old Testament many times, I do know there are a lot of them, but some believe there are exactly 333 of these prophecies. And here's what's provocative. The chances of all of those prophecies coming true in one person, somewhere out there in the future, is infinitesimally small. In fact, someone put it like this. The chances of all those prophecies coming true in one person would be like you taking a little yellow sticky note. You know the kind I'm talking about, a little yellow sticky pad? And writing a cross on it and then flipping it over and putting it face down so you can't see the cross and then taking little sticky notes, yellow ones, just like it, and covering New York State from top to bottom. All the Adirondacks are covered, all the Catskills, the whole Hudson Valley, New York City is covered, western New York, the southern tier, it's all covered until the entire Empire State is just one mass of yellow stickies. And then you take a pilot of a helicopter who knows nothing about all this, and he's told to fly over the state and at random just pick a place to drop a person down from the helicopter who's going to be your search person. And their job is to turn over one of those yellow stickies, just one. The chances of all those prophecies coming true in one person is about the same as the chance of that person turning over the yellow sticky with the cross on it on the very first try infinitesimally small and yet they did come true in one person Jesus Christ now I don't know how that makes you feel but as a person who wants my faith to be rooted in some solid facts that gets my attention 
And if I were on a search today, like many of you are, I would be intrigued by that and curious and go, what is going on here? Maybe I need to check this out. Verse 7 reads, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now that was not his intent. He intended to slaughter the child. Because paranoid leaders like Herod cannot stand the idea of any possible competition. Verse 9 reads, After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother. There's a sense of urgency to this. And escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. By the way, just as Micah had predicted the place of his birth 750 years earlier, here the prophet Hosea is predicting this detail that God would call his son out of Egypt. This is predicted 800 years before it actually happened. But these astounding prophecies prophecies go on. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Let me say it yet again. The chances of all of these prophecies coming true in just one person is infinitesimally small. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. So he's now coming back from Egypt. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream... He withdrew to the district of Galilee 
and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Oh, by the way, that prediction we just read, that he will be called a Nazarene, that prophetic utterance was made centuries before this, and it was made before the town of Nazareth even existed. That's how amazing some of these prophecies are. He said, but pastor, what are we to make of all this? Can I tell you? Can I tell you why this is so utterly impressive? We have a better reason for believing in the accuracy of the story of Jesus than just that the Bible says it happened. Here's the better reason. Because the Bible said it happened and it was going to happen way before it happened. That is staggeringly impressive. Anybody can tell you what happened yesterday. But I cannot accurately tell you what's going to happen with detail tomorrow. If you read in a newspaper what happened last week, it's no big deal. Anybody can write that. But if you pick up today's newspaper and you read in specific, accurate detail what's going to happen next week, and it happens just as the paper said, you better get to know the writer and the editor, let me tell you. Because something special is going on there. And when we read these astounding prophecies that come true just as they are written, it gives us enormous confidence that the Bible is truly the Word of God. So let me ask you, let me be very personal with you. Are you on a search for meaning? Are you trying to find something to give your life to? Some ideal, some cause, some purpose? Here's my challenge to you. Whoever you are, whatever your age, don't spend your life on trends and fads that are here today and gone tomorrow. No, it's not worth it. Your life is more valuable than that. Connect your life. Find your roots in something that's ancient. Something that was not only here long ago, but it matters today, and it's going to keep on mattering right on into the future. That's what these magi found, that something was going on here that was way bigger than they were. And we all need to find our significance and meaning in that which is eternal. You see, there's so many reasons I love Christmas. But one of them is that it reminds us of a cosmic story that is bigger than we are. And the Bible says of Jesus that he's the Alpha and the Omega. That means he's the first and the last. The Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. The Omega is the last letter. He is the beginning. He is the end. And what these men would need to discover is that your life only finds true meaning when you come into a relationship with God and His story. That's when you really find what you're looking for. Now, let me raise an interesting question here. If what I said is really true, 
that we really only discover our true meaning in life when we get connected to that which is eternal, when we get connected to God and His story, the big meta-narrative that God is writing in this world. If that is really true, why does it seem that so few people, relatively speaking, find that? I think that's a good question. In fact, I'm so intrigued by this story today that when Herod called together the chief priests, the teachers of the law, these experts, and asked them where this Messiah King was to be born, they knew the answer immediately. But here's what's weird. They seem to be complacent about it, like it was no big deal. You see, think about this. Suppose you were a teacher of the law. That's how you earn your living. And you're studying the scriptures, and let's suppose that you understand that the central message of the Old Testament is that one day God is going to send a Redeemer, a Savior, a Messiah who will save His people from their sins and will begin to change everything that the curse put in place. You know that's the key message of the Bible and you know the details about how that's going to happen. And so one day, these strangers show up, knock on your door and say, hey, we saw a weird star in the east. We believe there's some Jewish king being born. And then Herod calls you in at about the same time and asks you about it and you tell the details don't you think that you would be intrigued by that? I'll tell you what I would do. As soon as I was out of Herod's presence, I'd go get on my camel and I'd hoof it down to Bethlehem, folks, to see what was really going on here. I would want to see for myself. This is the hope of Israel we're talking about. But they don't do that. They remain complacent and nonchalant about it all. We've got to understand something today, that familiarity often breeds contempt. And sometimes we're so familiar with something, it just doesn't hold any freshness or interest for us anymore. That's why I'm frankly concerned about some of you. You see, you've been around the church, and you may have an attitude like, oh, I've been there, done that. Or some of you may be sitting here today and you're rather nonchalant and uninterested because you've had some bad church experiences and it turned you off. Or maybe you've known some Christians who were hypocrites and you said, I don't need that kind of phoniness in my life. Or maybe you've had some painful things happen to you and you reason, if there were really a good God, those kind of things would never happen to me, but because they did, I'm just not sure I can believe this. And so you feel a little bit jaded. And you're not interested anymore. I would urge you to be awfully careful with that. Because while all those things may explain your disillusionment, God is not calling you to accept Christians as your Savior. He's calling you to accept Christ as your Savior. Humans will always let you down to one degree or another. I hope, I hope everybody's clear on that. Because every human is imperfect. Christ 
is the only all-sufficient Savior. He's the one God is calling you to. The Savior. He's not calling you to be religious. He's not calling you to be a little Christianette who spouts pious platitudes. He's not calling you to some sort of form of religion. He's calling you to a relationship with the living Christ. I find it interesting that the Magi who are from the East, totally unfamiliar with all these things, they're the ones who are the most excited about it. That boggles my mind. They didn't know any of this stuff. But it teaches us a powerful lesson that we all need to learn. We can be surrounded by the things of God, but unless we're seeking for God, we're not likely to find him. Jesus made it an interesting statement in Matthew 7. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. I get skeptical when I occasionally hear people say, well, yeah, I'm searching for God, but I just can't find him. Really? That seems to go contrary to what Jesus said there. Jesus said, you ask, you seek, you knock, you're going to find what you're looking for. The door's going to be open. You say, but pastor, what happens if you're seeking in the wrong thing? Well, I love today's story because it suggests that God will guide you and direct you to the right thing, even when you're seeking in the wrong thing, if your heart is genuine, if the Holy Spirit is driving that search and that seeking. Think about it. These men were seeking through astrology. That's the wrong thing. I mean, just read the Old Testament. It is full of criticism of astrology. But that's what they were seeking in. But God sovereignly, sovereignly led them to Christ. Now, I can't promise you God will do this in every case. But that gives me biblical precedent to say to you today that even if you're seeking in something that is wrong and your heart is bent toward God the whole time, and the Holy Spirit is drawing you, God will sovereignly steer you toward the right place. But I'm going to tell you, it gets even better. Not only are we to be seeking God, but I'm going to blow your mind now. Buckle your seatbelt, everybody. Not only are we to be seeking God, can you stand this? God is seeking us. Woo! Jesus gave a mission statement in Luke chapter 19, verse 10. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is saying, this is why I've come. This is my mission. I'm here to seek and save the lost. Some people get miffed by that word lost. They get all bent out of shape. They get offended by it. How dare you call me lost? Listen, listen. Lost is a wonderful word. To be called lost means that you are valuable. It's a wonderful description because to be lost 
And to be sought means you're valuable. If God, I've got a plain old water bottle that I'm carrying around with me and I get up and leave it somewhere and just forget it and don't know where I left it, it's lost. But I'm not searching for it. Why? Because it's not really worth that much. I can just get another one. But if I lose my wallet with my driver's license, my photo ID, my credit cards, and a bunch of cash, I'm going to be asking everybody, have you seen my wallet? It's lost. I'm searching for it. It's valuable. And God says, you are incredibly valuable. He is seeking you today and calling you to himself. I'm impressed by these magi because they weren't just seeking some frivolous thing for themselves, some psychotherapy, some pop psychology, some sort of pleasurable experience, some sort of treasure from God that they could receive in a selfish way. No, they were seeking God himself. How do we know that? Because verse 2 said, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. So as we wrap up today, let me ask you this question. Are you on a search? Oh, I commend you for that. God honors a genuine search. But here's the thing. Ultimately, we have to decide what we're going to do with the evidence. And when you boil this story all down, there are basically three different responses that we can choose. And I wonder which one you will choose today. First of all, there are the scribes, the teachers of the law. They neglected Christ. They had a bunch of answers. They had tons of information. But they just weren't all that curious or interested. They neglected Christ. And I believe there are millions of people in that category today. They've got knowledge. They've got head knowledge. They know a bunch of the facts. They actually believe some of them, but they're just very nonchalant and noncommittal about it all. Don't let that be you. But then secondly, there's Herod. Herod rejected Jesus, and he actually did all he could to destroy him. I'm not sure there's a high percentage of people in that category today, but by all means, don't let that be you. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. If you don't gather with me, you scatter abroad. There is no middle ground here. Neglect, rejection, but here's the third and final response. The wise men, the magi in this story, they accepted Christ. Here's the staggering thing. All three groups were looking at exactly the same evidence. But they all had different responses. And my question for you is, what is your response to Jesus Christ going to be. Father, would you help us today by your spirit to respond with open hearts and open minds 
if Plato was right, that man is a being searching for meaning, if that is true, and I believe it is, may scores of people find their meaning, find their purpose, find their rootedness in you today. And I ask that you would come into hearts right now. Draw people to yourself. Let them know they are valuable to you. You cherish them and that Jesus died on the cross for them. That's how much you love them. And may this be a moment of incredible life transformation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.